0: Hey, Reliance Church, how are you guys doing? It is great to be with you. I'm Pastor Ted. I am one of the pastors here. We're going to be in John chapter 11 and get right to work there if you want to open your Bibles. And uh, as you're making your way to John chapter 11, by way of introduction, tell you a story. This is my favorite story to tell, and there's a good chance you've heard me tell this story. Um, I want to tell you about when I first laid eyes on my wife, Brenda. Here it is, Valentine's Day, and uh, wonderful memories, but uh, I worked in the emergency room at Little Company Mary Hospital in Torrance. I was working as an ER tech, and uh, my wife worked in uh, ER admitting. Um, she was getting ready to go to nursing school, and uh, in, in for me, I was, I was preparing for paramedic school. So, um, so I was working in the ER. I worked the night shift. She worked the day shift. We never saw each other. But one day, one evening, she had taken an overtime shift, and so she was, uh, she was working on my shift, and as I'm talking, I'm standing at the nurse's station, I'm talking to the unit secretary, a gal named uh, Mary, and so I'm talking to Mary, and all of a sudden, I see this redhead come walking in with a chart to put it in the, in the rack there, and, uh, and I just tra- I s- stopped talking in that moment. I'm pretty sure my jaw was hanging on, but I'm just staring at this redhead that comes walking in. So much, it was so obvious that Mary turns and looks, she sees Brenda, she turns back to me, and she says, do you like her? And I said, like her? I'm gonna marry her. First thing I ever said when I saw my wife. And, um, and so... Uh, little kind of backstory. I'm horrible with names. Uh, I just always have been. I wish I was better, but I'm just bad at names. So fast forward a few weeks. I, I have have taken Brenda out on a few dates, and, and I'm talking to this same unit secretary, and I, and I get to, and I'm telling her just kind of about this date that I had, and uh, and I forget Brenda's name <laughs> as I'm telling her about this date, and she looks at me incredulously. She's like, Her name is Brenda. If you're going to marry her, you're going to need to remember her name, right? Now, I tell you that story by way of introduction. Here's why. Because um, it's all about Brenda's response. It was all about her response. If, If I told that story and it ended that she shot me down, right, then it would just be awkward and sad. It would be an awkward and sad story that I would never retell. Why do I delight to retell the story? Because of her response to my advances, right? And she would ultimately become my wife. It turns out I was a prophet, right? So (laughs) it was amazing. Now, uh, again, the reason I tell you that story is because we left off with Jesus in Bethany. And Jesus performs a great miracle there in Bethany. He raises Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 10, Jesus said he was God, and in John chapter 11, he proved he was God. He raised this man who'd been in the grave uh, for, for four days. And the question then becomes, how do we respond? How do we respond? He says he's God. He proves he's God. How do we respond? Here's the thing. In all things, God is the initiator, and man is the responder. Everywhere you look in the scriptures, it reinforces that truth, Uh, whether it be Adam, whether it be Moses, whether it be David, whether it be uh, Jesus' disciples. In every instance, you will discover that, that Jesus initiated the relationship, God initiated the relationship. He appears, he reveals himself, and then he invites a response, just like I did with Brenda, right? And so in our text today what we're going to see is five distinct groups of of people and five different responses to Jesus. As well, we're going to look at three characteristics that mark a genuine response to Jesus. And we pick it up right where we left off. In verse 45, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And verse 45 says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees, and they told them the things that Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council, and they said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. There's no denying that Jesus is performing miracles. They're just saying, Hey, this is a problem. He works many signs. We've got to do something about it. Verse 48, If we let him alone like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and they will take away both our place and our nation. What we have here in these first uh, opening verses are the first two responses to Jesus. We have the many, and we have the malicious. We have the many who express faith in Jesus in verse 45, and we have the malicious who express hostility towards Jesus in verses 46 through 48. Now, the first response of the many in verse 45 is simple, but it's very critical. The text simply says, many believed in him, and that word believed literally means belief that results in confidence and trust. That's key. A belief that results in confidence and trust. Listen, everything hinges on that. Because the Bible says that belief in Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, And the Bible says regarding our belief that we have to be diligent to confirm our calling and our election. In other words, our belief has to be genuine. And not just a fire insurance prayer where, hey, I, I said the prayer, you know, and then I go on and there's no change whatsoever. I hear the gospel and I go, hey, that, that, that sounds great. You know, I could use a handy guy like, like that to have around. Uh, I don't want to go to hell. So, you know, there is, there is this, this intellectual belief. Yeah, I believe he's God, but there is no absolute confidence in him to say, I'm going to surrender to him as Lord. Big difference between the two. There is that real commitment. The great Blondin, uh, Blondin that's, that, that was his title, great Blondin. He was a guy in 1859. Very famous tightrope walker, and um, it, one of his most spectacular uh, stunts was that he set up a tightrope across Niagara Falls, and he did all of these things where he'd walk out on the wire, he you know, and walk all the way across, and then he brought a hot plate actually and, and cooked a, a meal out there in the middle, you know, on the on the thing, and then he got this wheelbarrow. And, uh, and, he, and he, he proclaimed to the crowd. He said, how many of you think I can walk across with this wheelbarrow? Oh, we believe, we believe. And so then he proceeded to walk back and forth with this wheelbarrow. Then he came back and he said, how many of you will get into the wheelbarrow? And as the story goes, only one person was willing to get into the, the wheelbarrow. It was either, depending on the account you listen to, it was either his mom who got in the wheelbarrow and went across with him, uh, or it was his manager. But, but someone actually got in. They, uh, they, they didn't just profess belief, but they put feet on their uh, belief. And, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is important that we understand. Because Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 7, um, he, he said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. There's, a, there's an implication there that, that our belief actually has to um, be a, tran- a, a transformative one, a true one, that it's not just a fire insurance kind of profession, but it, that it's a true surrender to the Lordship Of Jesus Christ your salvation is totally and completely wrapped up in believing but but it has to be not an intellectual belief it has to be a true surrendered belief that's the idea and you know the text gives us several indicators here that the belief of the many in verse 45 was in fact genuine first indication uh, is the reaction of the religious leaders you notice in verse 48 what do they say if we let Jesus alone everybody's gonna believe in him. Why do they say that? Well, because they're reacting to the genuine faith of the many. These guys clearly believe, right? So so that suggests that their belief is genuine. Second indication in our text (coughs) is that John makes a contrast between the many and the malicious. He says, but some of them went away to the Pharisees. What he's doing is he's contrasting the malicious with the many. He's saying, you know, many believe. But some of them went away to rat Jesus out to the Pharisees they didn't believe. The third and I think strongest indication that the response of the many is genuine was Jesus what he said in verse 40 as he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, Basically, he said he was doing so for the expressed purpose that, number one, people would believe in him and secondly, that God the Father would be glorified. In that, right? In the fact that people would believe in him. And, and so that, that's the idea, that, that God would be glorified as Jesus saved the lost. And verse 45 confirms that what Jesus said was true. That God the Father was glorified that many believed in him. Now, in stark contrast to the many who believed, not everybody believed. Uh, And verse 46 through 48 distinguishes between the many and the malicious who display this hostility towards Jesus. And to me, I find that absolutely crazy. If If a guy showed up and said, I'm God, and then he raised a guy from the dead, and it was just right there, proof, loud and clear... The fact that, that there would be many who, who believed in him, but that there would be those who didn't and walked away, I'm like, good grief, what else do you need, right? It, 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 it's crazy to me, but you know, it's not surprising. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. And you go, how on earth could, could God, manifesting his love in the person and the work of Jesus, healing the sick and raising people from the dead, how on earth could that bring division? Well, it's not that Jesus wants division. It's that Jesus knows the human heart when he says that. See, the message that Jesus proclaims is a message to some that is offensive. The gospel, at the central truth of it, is really authority and change. That's, that's the idea of the gospel, that Jesus basically comes and says, you are not the highest authority in your life. I am. And for, for many, that is offensive. How dare you tell me that, that, that I have to surrender to you? I want to be God. I want to be in charge, right? As well, Jesus basically says, look, you got a problem, man. You need to change. That makes people mad. What do you mean I need to change? I'm perfect just the way I am. And, and how could you be, you know, so, so you know, offensive? And, and, and how could you be, you know, not inclusive to, to love me just the way I am and celebrate just who I am? And so when Jesus preaches the gospel that basically fundamentally says, you're not in charge, I am, and you need to change it sets some people off. They're like, I don't need to change. I'm perfect just the way that I am. See, understand Christ demands humility. A confession that we are not the highest authority and, and a confession that sometimes we're wrong. Oftentimes, most of the time, we're wrong. And so what we have to do is we have to admit that our only hope is to repent, to confess Jesus as Lord, and then to yield to him as Lord, but not everybody's willing to do that. I like what Jonathan Swift, the 16th century cleric, said. He said, "There's none so blind as those who will not see." The most deluded people are those who choose to ignore what they already know. And these religious leaders—they already knew it. They're like, "We can't deny what he's doing." I mean, these these works are good grief. We can't deny it. But if we let him alone, everybody's going to believe in him. So we need to stop him. Why? Because they're offended. They're offended. Verse 47, we'll pick it up in context. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered a council. They said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. Here's what these guys feared. These religious leaders feared that Jesus was going to rile the people up And that he was going to perpetuate sedition against Rome and that Rome would react poorly because Rome did not tolerate anything like that. And so they thought, man, if we let him alone, all the people are going to rise up. They're going to rebel against Rome. And the end of the day, what's going to happen is Rome's going to put this down hard. And not only that, they're going to take away our temple from us. And they're going to, to take away our right to rule over the nation. And so they're like, we can't do that. Now, ironically, this fear that they express is actually going to come true in about 37 years after this, um, but not because Jesus led a rebellion. Uh, Rome will overtake and destroy the temple and will kick the, the, the Jews out, but Jesus didn't spearhead that. Jesus, speaking to Pontius Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, But my kingdom's not of this world. And the Pharisees, they didn't get that memo. And really, here's the point of application for us as as, as we consider their response. It all comes down to this Who will be your king, and whose kingdom are you living for? Who's gonna be your king, and whose kingdom are you living for? Will money be your king? Will ambition be your king? Will independence be your king? Will your lusts and passions be your king? Are your addictions gonna be the king of your life? Or will you confess that you are a lousy king and that your kingdom is bankrupt? See, here's what I know. What I know is that whenever you go after somebody's kingdom and you go after their authority, it is a full-on cage fight, right? That's what happens. Some of you today, you, you need to seriously examine your own heart and you need to take a walk with this question, am I living like I'm the king of my kingdom? And here's some clues for you as you consider that. You can't just blanketly answer that and walk away. You really have to be introspective here and go, am, am I really living like I'm the king of my kingdom? And, and, and is, the, is, is that my focus? Here's some clues. Look at your checkbook, look at your calendar, and look at your priorities. Your checkbook and your calendar and your priorities are those three things that show very drastically who's, who's your king, what's your kingdom. You have to look at what makes you feel fearful or threatened. You have to look at what it is that you fight to control. What is it the things that you sacrifice for? Uh, what are the things that you covet or are envious of? What are the things that get your attention? What are the things that keep you up at night? These are the things. What, what is it that you, you know, I'm sacrificing for this. I'm, I'm fighting for this. This is, I look at my checkbook, it's all, this is where all my money goes. I look at my calendar, this is where all my time goes. We continue there in John 11, uh, verse, or 49, He says, one of them, Caiaphas... Being high priest that year, by the way, the high priest wasn't appointed from year to year. The emphasis here, when it says that Caiaphas was the high priest that year, it's the significance of that year that Jesus was crucified. That's the idea. But one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, he said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's uh, uh, expedient for us that one man should die for the people, And not uh, the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die. For the nation, in other words, uh, the idea here is that this this was really uh, a prophecy that he unintentionally was making, but because he was high priest, you know, the the Lord was basically speaking through him, uh, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one uh, in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Uh, then, from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. It's been said that even a broken clock is right twice a day. And Caiaphas here, he's, he is a broken clock. But he, he's right, but he's not right in the way that he thinks. See, because here's what Caiaphas thinks. He thinks Jesus is going to be a train wreck to us. He's going to be the ruin of us. Um, you know, the, the, Rome's going to come in, take away the temple, and going to take our rule away. So in order to save the nation, here's what we need to do. We need to kill Jesus. That's what he's saying. But what he doesn't realize is he just preached the gospel in one sentence. He just communicated that the people are in peril and they're at risk of losing everything, but by the death of one man, they might be saved. It's exactly what the gospel says. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But it says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin and to, uh, and to live, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to be offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. This is known as the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The idea is that your sins were paid for by a substitute. That Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, 1 Peter uh, 2, verse 24 The Apostle Peter puts it this way. He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you We're healed. You are not going to be made right with God by do-good, try-harder religion, by you trying to earn a right standing with God. Um, Your righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags to the Lord. There's nothing you can do to earn a right standing with God. It's by grace that you and I have been saved, and that happened through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. So so, Caiaphas, he doesn't know it, but Jesus' death is going to save not only the nation, but it's going to save the whole world. Last week, I mentioned to you guys Romans 8.28, that in all things, God works together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. That verse alludes to one of the attributes of God, which is uh, the fact that God is sovereign. Now, what does it mean that God is sovereign? Warren Wiersbe described it this way. He said the sovereignty sovereignty of God is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. Another pastor described it this way, he says it's like a cruise ship, that when you go on a cruise ship, you can make all kinds of independent choices and decisions on that cruise ship, but the captain of that ship determines where that ship goes. That's the idea of God's sovereignty, right? And in Caiaphas's counsel that we see here in verse 50, it falls into that category, See, the Jews are going to follow through with killing Jesus, and they think that this is going to save their kingdom, but it's not about their kingdom, it's about God's kingdom. And, and it's not about life on Earth, it's about eternal life in heaven. And so God will use their sinful act for His sovereign purpose. It's exactly what the Bible says in Acts 2:23 tells us there that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And and you go, well, wait a minute. Wasn't it the determined purpose and knowledge of of the Jews and the Romans collaborating together to kill Jesus? Yes, but it it happened by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God that those things occurred. So we see here the first two responses to Jesus. We've got the many who display faith in Jesus. We've got the malicious who display open hostility towards Jesus. And here now we're going to look at three more. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 11 and then we'll go into chapter 12 for the first eight verses there. So, We pick it up in verse 54, and it says, Therefore, because they planned from that day on to put him to death, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city uh, called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Verse 55 And the Passover of the Jews was near. This is a time stamp in your Bible. Understand. The 11 chapters that we've gone through up until this point have covered three years of Jesus' ministry. And now the, the remaining 10 chapters of this gospel are going to be entirely committed to one week, to a one week period. So now time slows down and we have just entered, Jesus is now a week away from going to the cross. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, and then they sought Jesus. And they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Jesus is going to be here? Is he not going to be here? What do you think? Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that he should report it, that they might seize him. Why? Because they want to kill him. Uh, and then, chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. It's about three miles from Jerusalem, so he's in the neighborhood of Jerusalem here. Um, he's, he comes to Bethany, this is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, um, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Jesus, and then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Ephesians five two, Paul says that as we walk in love, that God receives it as a sweet smelling aroma, and that's what comes to my mind as I think of the house being filled uh, with the fragrance of the oil. But, verse 4, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray Jesus, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is about a year's wages, and he's incredulous. But John points out, verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. He's like, I could have used that money, but he doesn't couch it in those terms. But Jesus said, verse seven, let her alone, she has kept this for the day of my burial, that's key, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. So, we have these responses to Jesus, the first two we've looked at. We, we look at the many, we look at the response of the malicious, and here now we see three more, and in reverse order, here's the three responses that we see. We see the response of the multitude, we see the response of the manipulator, and then we see the response of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So let's, take, let's break this down in reverse order. Notice the response of the multitude in verse 9. What's it say there? It says that a great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there and they came, here's the key, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. This response represents those people who display a fickle curiosity about Jesus. They came not for Jesus' sake only, they came to see the show. Listen, you don't want to be in this group. When we talk about how we respond to Jesus, these are the people that are consumers, not contributors. These are the people that have come to be entertained. They have not come to be rearranged. Listen, let me just tell you that if you're in this group, you're missing out. You're missing out. Because the those that come for the show, those that come for the experience, those that come to be entertained rather than be arranged, rearranged, then the the approach of them and the focus of them is, you know, what are the programs that the church has to offer? What well, how, how how's the worship at the church? What's a, what's the preaching like uh, at the church? And, and and when you come to church with with all of those surface things being a priority, let me just tell you, you're missing out. Rather than browbeat you about that, I'll just simply say that the attitude. Of that just breaks my heart because God wants to do a rearranging work in us. And when we come to church, in, and we do so with my life in an open hand, and, and I'm not coming going, you know what, I didn't like that worship. I told you about a, a pastor who had somebody come up to him and they're like, I didn't like worship today. And he's like, Well, it wasn't for you. It's not for you, right? I, I'm blessed. You know, I mean when when we come to church, I mean, God has been so good to us. I, I mean I'm blessed that our worship is 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 wonderful. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, right? Um and and I, I'm up here singing my heart out, but thank God there's not a microphone on me, right? But but I'm blessed that, you know, when we come, you know, oh man, the wor- worship's great. I think the teaching's biblical, I'll say that. Um, you know, a, a children's ministry, I'm I'm blessed for all of those things. But 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 that's not why we gather. I mean, I've told my wife before, if I wasn't the pastor of this church, I'd go to this church. Because God's doing a transforming work here. And, and when we come to church, if we just have in a, my life in an open hand, and I'm going, look, God, you want to rearrange me. And and this is this is what I'm coming to meet with you. I'm coming to hear from you. I'm not coming, you know, for a show. I'm not coming for experience. I'm not coming, you know, for... This idea of being entertained, I'm coming to be a rearranged God. And, and if, if that's not what's bringing you to church, you're missing out on the, the, just the awesome work that God wants to do. Best counsel I ever received as a pastor. I was told, look, what you draw people with, you draw them to. So, so if you want to go after consumers and you want to just give them all the bells and whistles and scratch them where they're itching every single way, then, then that's fine. But that's what, understand, you've drawn them with that. So now you're on that, that treadmill. A- and you better make sure that, that you know, this is, these are the things you've got to focus on. Why? Because that's what, draw, what you drew them with. And so that's what you're drawing them to. And the moment you're not doing all of those things, they're out. But listen, if you draw people with the word of God, if you draw people with this attitude, this idea, I'm not coming to be entertained, I'm coming to be rearranged, then what you're doing is you're draw, drawing them with Jesus, you're drawing them to Jesus, right? And so, so I'm, I'm just so grateful for that counsel. So we see this, re, this response uh, as, you know, we, we, we see the multitude coming to be entertained rather than be rearranged. The fourth response, we'll look at Judas, the manipulator. Verses 4 through 6, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. What's his focus? What's up with with you breaking out this, this year's worth of wages extravagance on Jesus, right? Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't care about the poor. He cares about himself. He was planning on stealing it, appropriating it for his own uses, Right? Judas is a manipulator. He sees Jesus as a means to an end. And the end, as far as Judas is concerned, is him. See, John says, look, Judas is a thief. He hung around Jesus for what he was gonna get out of it. He hung around Jesus for, for how he could profit from it. Years, years ago, we we had a guy in my last church. And, um, and he was an insurance salesman. And, and why did he make the church his home? And this actually came out of his own mouth. This isn't me ascribing somebody else's, you know, motives. He came there for business. He came there for business because it was a big church and lots of people there. And so it gave him an opportunity to, to, to make, just to make a buck. And this is Judas, right? He could care less About Jesus and his mission, he's just all interested in how he can profit. And so we see Mary, she's she's demonstrating this beautiful act of worship. We'll get to Mary in a minute. But, you know, for him, he's ridiculing her. Why? Because he could care less about Jesus and furthering Jesus' mission. He's looking for a payday. Years ago, my dad bought me a radio, and it was the coolest thing. I wish I still had it. It had d- eight different frequencies on it, so you could, listen to, um, you could listen to AM radio, you could listen to FM radio, but you could also listen to airplanes, you could listen to the fire department, the police department on this thing, you could, you could tune in to the Coast Guard or to, to the weather channel, you know, it was amazing, but all I cared about was the AM station, listening to KHJ, right, I'm showing my age here, but all I cared about was listening to the rock and roll on KHJ. And I remember my dad just got so upset, and he actually said to me, he goes, I bought you this $100 radio, and all you care about is the $2 channel. That's Judas here. That all he cares about is this $2 channel. He doesn't care about Jesus's mission, right? And in six days from now, when it becomes very clear that Jesus's mission doesn't line up with Judas's mission, he's going to betray Jesus, Sell them out for 30 pieces of silver. Here's our application as we consider his response. We have to ask the question, am I looking to Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus to seek his agenda and yield to that? Or am I looking to Jesus for my agenda, right? We we have to ask this question because, you know, there are those that come to to Jesus and and the attitude is that, you know, he's a genie in the bottle, Right? And, and I just come to Jesus, and I get my three wishes. You know? And, and, and you know, Jesus, metaphorically speaking, he's a piñata, and I just beat him with prayer, and out come all the goodies. Right? And this is the way that some people relate to Jesus. And we, we have to ask the question, man, you know, what's me? I told you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And again, this isn't saying you got to earn a right standing with God. you got to earn your salvation. Jesus is just saying, look, you know, you can come to Jesus with wrong motives. You can worship the wrong Jesus is the idea. That I put Jesus' name on it, but really, I'm God. And Jesus is just in existing to serve me. And we really need to take a walk with that. Well, that brings us to this final response to Jesus in verses 2 and 3 as we work in reverse order there in chapter 8. And who's the final response? We see the example of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And what they do here, they provide for us a pattern of the model of worship. As we close, what I want to do here is focus on three characteristics that mark a genuine response to Jesus. And it's a picture of us in the church, right? What the church should look like and and how we should function as members in the body of Christ. Let's start with Lazarus. We read the account. Lazarus represents new life in Christ. What was Lazarus? He was dead in the grave. You and I, we were dead in trespasses and sins, right? And Lazarus was powerless to do anything about it. Jesus called him forth. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. Paul, speaking to the Ephesians, talked about us. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. He goes on to say, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. And by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. And this is this picture of Lazarus. He's just now sitting in Jesus' presence. He's just resting in his glory. By the way, who can blame him? Like I would too, right? You would too? Lazarus is like, hey, I died this week, I've had a rough day, you know, I've had a rough week, I'm just going to rest in Jesus. And sometimes we need that. You know, the opportunity that we have as children of God is just to, to, to find our rest in Jesus, right? Just to, just to glorify him. When Jesus told the parable about the seeds that were planted among the thorns, he, he described these seeds as, as you know, being... <clears throat> the word of God that, that, that is implanted in our life, but the, the cares and the concerns of the world, what happened? They choke out the seed. They make it unfruitful. But listen, as God's children, we can find our rest in him. We don't have to have, you know, the cares and the concerns of this world choke out the, the, the word of God and make it unfruitful in our lives. We can, we can find our rest in him. So, so there's there's Lazarus. He's he's a, a, this 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 beautiful picture of a characteristic mark of a believer. And that, then we got Martha. Check Martha out. She gets a bum rap, by the way. Martha does. You know, in in Luke chapter ten, Jesus comes to their house and Martha's serving. That's her spiritual gift. Um, you know, and and it, and it's. It, we're all called to serve I'll unpack that in just a second but but for Martha in particular, you know this is like this is her wheelhouse but in in Luke chapter ten, she gets a little distracted little little tense uh, you know she had a couple a couple of too many lattes and she's a little she's a little worked up and she 's angry with Mary Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, right. Um, and Mary, in, in, in that instance, in Luke chapter 10, she's, she's behaving like Lazarus. And by the way, as I look at Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus and their response, all of this response collectively it should represent all of us, you know, in different aspects of, of how we abide in Christ, right? And so... Martha gets this bum rap, Luke chapter 10, Jesus, make my sister help me with the work and, uh, and, and all. She, she's distracted, but she's a great example to us of just faithful Christian service. You see, resting in Jesus, that's important, and we should be doing that. But as well, serving's also important. Uh, Paul, speaking to the Ephesians, he said, God makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts to grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Service is one of our values here at Reliance Church, um, and uh, values are important because what we value shapes what we do, and what we do establishes our culture. And so we make no bones about it. We say, listen, we value serving. And we articulate that value this way. We say that we are contributors and we're not consumers. Right? Why? Because Jesus himself... Was a servant. Mark 10:45, Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And, and the Bible says God expects nothing less from us. Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2:10, that we are his workmanship that were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that word workmanship is, is very specific and important. In the, in the Greek, it means poem or work of art. What that means is God has uniquely made you to be you. And that you play a very distinct, unique role within the church. The Bible calls us living stones. And it likens us to a physical body. Where every part does its share and every part is is important. So so we look here and we see Lazarus, who, who represents new life in Christ... And we see Martha, who is this example of faithful Christian service, and we close looking at Mary. And she's just there worshiping at the feet of Jesus, and she's growing in grace and in truth. And, you know, every time we see Mary in the Scriptures, where is she? She's at the feet of Jesus. Every single time you see Mary in the Scriptures. In Luke 10, she sat at Jesus' feet, and she's listening to him, kind of what we see Lazarus doing here. In Luke or in John chapter eleven, she falls at Jesus' feet in her grief. Remember, we read that last week when Lazarus is dead, and she comes to Jesus. She falls at his feet. She brings all of her grief and her burden and her cares to Jesus, and she's just there at his feet. And then here now in John chapter twelve, she's anointing his feet with oil, wiping it with her hair. Understand this act of worship; it's very significant. It represents that Mary understood Jesus' mission, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has been telling these guys he's going to the cross. He's been telling, it made it abundantly clear. Nobody seems to have actually heard him, but Mary heard him. And what she does here is that she is literally anointing his body for death. That's what the text tells us. This is her act. Of worship, she takes this this container of spikenard. This is a very costly perfume. You know, in this day and age, they didn't have a bank. You couldn't put your money, you know, in a bank to be safe or whatever. So a lot of times, they would invest in different material goods. That's how they that's how they retained their wealth. How they kept their wealth was was in the the, the items that they that they had. Yes, they had money, but but you know, they they would preserve their wealth in different ways in all likelihood what this is is mary's dowry some have speculated that that um, you know this is something that's very valuable it's a year's wages and it's that thing that she would give to her husband when they got married right and and so what is she doing is she's giving sacrificially to honor jesus's coming sacrifice so what she does is she takes that, which is probably her greatest possession, and she just pours it out on Jesus in worship of him. And we can't read about Mary without having Judas's uh, contrast in there. You've got Mary's sacrifice starkly contrasted with Judas's scorn. Mary worships Jesus with her wealth. Judas just worships wealth. And so it's this beautiful picture of this gal who's just sitting at his feet. And so we take all of that together. We see Mary, we see Martha, we see Lazarus, and and what we have here are these three characteristics that just mark the genuine response of the believer, that we're sitting at the Lord's feet, that we're serving the Lord with the gifts that he's given to us. And that we're sitting at the Lord's feet to, to learn and to listen and to respond to the revelation that He gives to us. Well, as and we, we step back and we look at all of these responses to Jesus, you've got the many who express the faith in Him. and you've got the malicious who express hostility to Jesus, and you've got you know, the multitude who are just you have this fickle curiosity about you know, the experience. You've got Judas, the manipulator, who who just sees Jesus as a means to an end. And then you've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who just have this healthy response in their active worship of the Lord. And we close asking the question which one describes me? Which one describes you? Well, I'm going to close with three questions. We'll put these up at the end as well, and I'm going to close in prayer. Here's the first question What is my checkbook, my calendar? And my priorities tell me about my responsiveness to Jesus. Second question In what ways am I tempted to live like I'm the king of my kingdom? Third question How do I sacrificially worship Jesus?